Thanks for listening today to In 16 Years. I'm Amy, and this is a podcast where I talk about what I've learned in 16 years of living with stage 4 endo, severe IBS, fibromyalgia, and interstitial cystitis. My name is Brittany, and I live with celiac disease, anxiety, and my own hormonal fun. We hope this show will inspire you, empower you, and help you feel supported on your own health journey. Brittany and I are not doctors, dietitians, mental health professionals, experts on endometriosis, or any kind of qualified medical professional. So that means that none of the information we share on this podcast is medical or mental health advice. If you get inspired by something we say, always consult your qualified medical professional first before making any changes. Today we're going to talk about the side effects of Lupron and Orlissa. If you haven't tuned in for the whole series, I highly recommend that you do. You can listen to them individually and they'll all make sense. But if you are thinking about taking one of these medicines, then we highly recommend that you listen to the whole three-part series. Just to summarize in part one, we talked about the patient's typical experience in being offered Lupron. We also talked about my experience in a near-menopausal state when I was on Depo-Provera. And we really highlighted how the pharmaceutical companies influence endometriosis standards for care, and especially how AbV, which is the makers of Lupron and Orlissa, and their marketing tactics to influence what the public sphere thinks should be the standard treatment for endometriosis. In part two of our series, we talked about the efficacy of Orlissa and Lupron. We talked about so much data. We talked about the raw data, the difference between the raw data and the published data. We talked about the fraudulent data. We talked about the data coming out of clinical trials and from independent trials. It was a lot of data. It was a lot of data. (laughs) So much data. (laughs) Our brains hurt. (laughs) But it was all very useful data because it helped us understand the difference between the published data and what that says about the effectiveness versus the raw data and what that says about the effectiveness. And now today, in our final installment. Final for now. Thank God. Thank you, God. (laughs) Honestly, doing these episodes have been so tiring because... Tiring, but worth it. It's been really fascinating to learn all of the research. And I have to say that Brittany and I really love going deep and finding the research. But it's also been really tiring to relay all the information because we've really wanted to... Make sure we got it right. (laughs) Yeah, and put in painstaking detail not to give any misinformation. So it's just been a lot of really honing in on research and trying to delicately deliver. (laughs) Like a flower in bloom. (laughs) The research about Lupron or Lissa. So it's been tiring. We're happy this is the final one. And we're thankful so many of you have been enjoying these episodes. It means all our effort was worth it. (laughs) So today we're going to talk about the side effects of the two drugs. And we feel that for some of you, this might be a very hard episode to listen to, because as we learned about a lot of the side effects and those that have experienced them, it was very difficult for us to come to terms with the pain that they've caused to some of the people that have taken them. So if you have taken one of these drugs and you were not aware of the side effects when you began the medication or you weren't informed of them, we understand that this may be a hard episode to listen to. We're also aware that many doctors prescribe these drugs without actually informing patients of the seriousness of the side effects. And this is especially frustrating because we have a right to know exactly what we're putting in our bodies, and we trust our doctors to relay that information to us. But in many cases, they're not informed, so they can't inform us either. 
So we're here on the journey with you to understand these side effects. And if you have experienced these side effects, we're very sorry that you have had that happen to you. And if you're considering taking these medications, please understand that we're going to be reporting on some data and research here. So we also recommend that you look into this yourself as well. While some of the information in this episode may be scary, we're not trying to create fear. This is not fear-mongering. We're not trying to make you feel scared or worried. We're rather trying to inform you. So if you're thinking about taking these drugs or you're currently taking them, we want to give you as much information as we possibly can equip you with because knowledge is power. It's a common phrase, but I think it rings true here. If you have taken these medications and you're experiencing serious side effects, there's a couple options for you that we think are pretty helpful. The first one being actually reporting them to the FDA. The FDA does track these reports. It can help them see trends among people taking a medication. They do this for all medications, so it can be very helpful for future research and regulating medication. Additionally, you can seek out community. There are other people who have experienced side effects with these medications, especially with Lupron, which has been on the market for almost 30 years longer than Orlissa. There are Facebook groups and websites for people who experience long-term side effects of Lupron, and we'll talk more about that later. And of course, you should always bring up serious side effects with your doctor who actually prescribed you the medication. And we just want you to know that with all of the information that we're going to give today, We are not shaming or judging anyone for using Lupron and Orlissa. Sometimes in our community, we do hear shame about certain treatment options or certain decisions that people make, but we just want you to know that we're just here to give information and we do not have any judgments towards the decisions that you have made that are right for you and your body. And on that note, We want you to know that we are not advising you to take or to not take Lupron or Alyssa. We cannot advise you on that. That's your own personal choice to make with your doctor about your body. But just keep in mind, as we always talk about, that so many doctors are misinformed about endometriosis and about Lupron and Alyssa and the side effects and the efficacy. So it's really, really important when you work with your doctor to work with someone who is qualified and knowledgeable on endometriosis. And a really good resource for that is joining the Facebook group Nancy's Nook. So the length of time that people can be on Lupron or Orlissa has been determined by the FDA, which in the United States is our Federal Drug Administration, which determines guidelines for safety for drugs. For Orlissa, there are two different doses that a person could be prescribed. The FDA has approved only six months on the high dose and two years for the low dose. So that's a pretty big disparity in the amount of time, six months or two years for the high versus the low dose. And that is because the longer you take the medication or the higher the dose, The side effects are dependent on the dose and the time that a person is on the drug. So, Brittany, what about Lupron? The FDA has approved that people can take Lupron for six months, and they can take it for a second six months as long as they do add back therapy to reduce the risk of their bone loss. 
Okay, so hold on. You're saying it's only been approved by the FDA for 12 months. Yes. And I have to do the ad back therapy for the second six months. Yes. Okay, hold on. Wait. 12 months. <laughs> yes. One year. Okay, hold on. 12 months. Yes. Okay, sorry. I'm just so <laughs> baffled because... And only six months if you don't do the ad back therapy for the second six months. I'm just so baffled because I've heard of so many people in the endo community who were on Lupron for two years, three years, four years. I think this is another example of how medical professionals are misinformed about the medications they may be prescribing and about how we're not given the full picture when it comes to deciding whether or not to take a medication. We're not told that these drugs are not recommended or approved for long-term usage. And some people are on them for years when they're not recommended to be on them for more than six months. And maybe you get a second six months if you do the add back therapy because it can contribute to bone density loss, which is very serious. We want to read directly from the prescribing information. So on Lupron's website, which is lupron.gyn.com, it says the following. And this applies to both the 3.75 milligram, which is the one-month injection of Lupron Depot, and also the 11.25 milligram, which is the three-month injection of Lupron Depot. So it says, quote, Initial treatment course of Lupron Depot, whether used alone or with add-back therapy, is limited to six months. A single retreatment course of not more than six months of Lupron Depot plus add back therapy may be used if symptoms recur. Lupron Depot should not be used alone for retreatment. The total duration of therapy with Lupron Depot plus add back therapy should not exceed 12 months due to concerns about adverse impact on bone thinning, end quote. We all know that when we're taking various drugs, we can have various side effects, and some of the side effects can really be awful, difficult to deal with, intolerable, and they can really make our life miserable. So we want to go ahead and list some of the side effects that are listed on Orlis's website. The first one that they warn the patient about is suicidal thoughts, actions, or behavior, and worsening of mood. So unfortunately, in the prescribing information that you can download from Orlis's website, it did report that there was one completed suicide that occurred in a patient being treated with Orlissa during the clinical trials, and she committed suicide two days after stopping Orlissa after being on it for 31 days. And it states that she had no relevant past medical history, but she did report life stressors. That's so heart-wrenching to hear. And I think in this community, when we struggle with something like endometriosis, it can be really challenging with other things added on top of that. So I just want to take a moment to be with that information and keep that in mind. And that if you are taking these medications or aren't but are dealing with endometriosis and are experiencing suicidal thoughts or ideation or are struggling with your mental health, please reach out to a mental health professional. It's very important that we take into account our mental health in terms of our whole treatment 
And every single one of us is so valuable to this community and to this planet. So please don't forget that. Another side effect reported for both Lupron and Orlissa was new depression or a worsening of an already existing depression. I think a lot of people who go on birth control or hormones realize that taking birth control or hormones can definitely affect mental health because hormones can affect the chemicals in our brains. I certainly saw when I was on Depo-Provera, as I reported in the first episode of this series, that I became very paranoid and I had a lot of mood swings and I became very anxious. So I definitely, in my own case, saw that my mental health was affected by taking hormones and also by being in a near-menopausal state. Orlissa's website also lists some other potential side effects, such as liver problems, jaundice, dark or miscolored urine, fatigue, nausea and vomiting, generalized swelling, gastrointestinal pain, and the ability to bruise much easier. The most common side effects of Orlissa, which is listed on their website, also includes hot flashes or night sweats, headache, nausea, difficulty sleeping, the absence of periods, anxiety, joint pain, depression, and mood changes. These side effects are similar to the side effects from Lupron because they put the body in a very low estrogen state. Okay, Brittany, so everything that you just mentioned was pretty horrible. Mm -hmm. Hot flashes, horrible. Like we need more of those. (laughs) (laughs) Also, I've had some pretty severe hot flashes and wow. I mean, it's like your body's on fire. One time I had a hot flash. It was so hot that I actually thought there was something like wrong with me. Like, you know, like I had the flu or like I had meningitis or I had a brain infection. It was just hormones. <laughs> it was just it was just a hot flash, but I mean, they can get people are like, "Oh, you get hot." No, you like your body burns up and you feel like something is wrong with you, like physically wrong with you. Uh, what else did you mention? Oh, the nausea. Hmm. Cuz we all want to spike in nausea. Good old oh, nausea yeah. that we got every day anyway. And then, oh, I'm liking the headache as a side effect there. One of your favorites, what... the fatigue. Ooh. <laughs> But back to the headache, I wonder if it's like a splitting migraine, just like a dull ache. It's like, is it a vice grip tension headache? We talking like hammer to the head? Is it the back of the eyes? I mean, what what kind of headache are we going for there? Oh, my personal favorite, insomnia. (laughs) Not sleeping for days. Everyone loves not sleeping and then you feel pain more acutely because your body hasn't slept enough. Oh, that vicious cycle. Ooh, joint pain. I get to love a little joint pain, you know? A little creaky in the morning, you know. <laughs> you wake up, oh, it's a beautiful day. Oh, and my knee hurts really bad and my elbows and oh, everything. All my joints hurt. <laughs> it's a great way to wake up. So I would say all of the side effects honestly sound pretty terrible to me, especially the more serious side effects that we talked about with the mental health or problems that could be had with the liver. And then there's a side effect of bone mineral density loss, which we're going to get into in a minute. I feel like it can be really hard because a lot of us, we are suffering severely and we really desperately want relief from our endometriosis pain. Maybe we're having very vicious, brutal, brutal menstrual cycles. I know my period is the period from hell, and I'm sure that it is for many, many of you listening. It's like, great, I would love to take 
this medication and to get rid of my period pain. I mean, if the medication worked for me to temporarily get a break and to get relief from my period pain, but then it just feels like we're trading one symptom for another. Like, oh, yay, I can get relief from my crippling menstrual pain, but then maybe I'm suffering three months from hot flashes, insomnia, joint pain, nausea, fatigue. It's really hard, I think, because we all have to evaluate the personal situation that we're in. And of course, if we take these medications, these side effects that it causes for us, and we have to decide what's more tolerable to us. Is it more tolerable to have the endometriosis pain and symptoms that we're having now? Or is it more tolerable to get rid of those and then take on all of the burden of all of those side effects that we could potentially have. I think it's really important to point out that we would be taking Lupron and Erlissa to have a temporary improvement in our quality of life because as we keep hammering home, Lupron and Erlissa do not treat endometriosis. And we have to keep hammering that home because so many doctors are misinformed and are telling their patients that this is a treatment for endometriosis where it's really just a treatment for our endometriosis pain. So if we're taking them because we want to improve the quality of our life temporarily while we're on them, but then as we take them, our quality of life is still terrible, then what is the point of taking these medications if that is the case for us? If the medications, if we're taking them and they're not working or we're taking them and they are working, but the side effects are intolerable, then they really haven't improved our quality of life which is what we're looking for when we take these medications. It can be a really frustrating and disappointing experience at times to take these medications and be hoping for relief and not get that. So we really hope if you are taking these medications that you are getting the relief that you want to feel on them with very little side effects. And if you are a longtime listener, you know Amy and I love research and data, so we also wanted to include that the Endometriosis Research Center, which is a patient advocacy group, they did a survey and found that almost half of the responding people, about 48%, reported that Lupron was intolerable for them. So when we talk about the quality of life, we both talk about the experience of being on the medication and also the experience of our quality of life after the medication. When we talk about the quality of life, it's very disheartening for a medication that we're potentially taking to have so many side effects that we can't tolerate it. So this also raises the question for us, what if we stop taking these medications and our quality of life could potentially be the same or worse than it was before? And I mention worse because there are some long-term side effects that can be permanent or irreversible. And so all of these things are something we have to consider when we're looking into taking a medication like this. I think that's a really important question to ask ourselves before taking Lupron or Alyssa. As Brittany said, is what is my quality of life going to be after I finish taking the medication? What is my quality of life going to be not just during the time I'm on the medication, but after I finish taking the medication as well? Like we said, the relief in symptoms and pain management is generally temporary. So the majority of patients get back their pain and their symptoms just a few weeks to a few months after stopping Lupron or Orlissa. 
So their quality of life goes back to the same quality of life that they had prior to taking the medication. And we're only able to be on the medication for six months on the high dose of Orlissa, one year on Lupron, or two years on the low dose of Orlissa. So it's not a very long period of time in the span of our lifetimes, in the span of living with a chronic, incurable illness to get relief from our pain. It's great to get relief for just a little pocket of relief for just a little while. There are days when I'd said, oh, I would do anything for just one hour of relief. So it's nice to get relief, even if it's only for six months. I mean, if the medications do offer you that relief without all of those burdensome side effects, but it's not a permanent solution. And we also need to factor in any and all of the potential long-term permanent side effects that we could have from these medications. And we're going to go into all of those in just a minute. So now we want to talk about a study that was done. A study or a quote-unquote study? A quote-unquote study. Oh, okay. (laughs) The best kind of studies. Okay, a quote-unquote study. (laughs) Who did the study? The study was done by AbV, who are the makers of Lupron and Orlissa. We actually found information about this study because the Endometriosis Research Center recently posted on Facebook about it. So, of course, we dug right in and tried to learn as much as we could. So this study is about how willing people are to accept risks or side effects to achieve the improvement in their endometriosis pain. So it's kind of looking at how far are you willing to go to get relief from your pain. So the first thing that we thought was amiss with the study was the participants that they used. So they had 250 people in the study, but they used people who self-reported a physician diagnosis of endometriosis. And not only that, 27% of them actually hadn't been surgically diagnosed, which we all know on this podcast is the only way to have a 100% diagnosis is with the surgery and the pathology report. I love when studies are done on people with endometriosis, but they don't even know if the person (laughs) has endometriosis. Imagine that actually making (laughs) sure the person you're studying has what you're studying. Whoa, that's just revolutionary. I mean, a quarter (laughs) of the people in the study, it's undetermined if they have endometriosis because they were not surgically diagnosed. That's just astonishing. Because there are multiple causes for pelvic pain, painful periods pain during sex, and other symptoms that are common to endometriosis. Well, AbbVie's conclusion was that, quote, women with endometriosis were willing to accept risks to achieve improvements in endometriosis-associated pain. The study also highlighted that bone risk fracture was the least important risk for these women. Hmm, well, I could trade my debilitating periods that have me writhing on the ground in pain and vomiting for a little bit of bone mineral density loss in the future. Big deal. I would trade that. So you say you would trade that, but do you know what you're actually trading? Do you know what losing bone mineral density actually means for you? Mm, My bones will have less density. Oh my gosh, you're so smart. (laughs) Yeah, but I actually just parroted that. I really don't know what it means, Brittany. Can you explain it to me, please? Bone mineral density loss is a very serious risk, and 
it may be long-term, potentially permanent, and irreversible. We want to read the warning from the prescribing information on Orlissa's website. So I quote, While you are taking Orlissa, your estrogen levels will be low. This can lead to bone mineral density loss. Your bone mineral density may improve after stopping Orlissa, but may not recover completely. It is unknown if these bone changes could increase your risk for broken bones as you age. End quote. Now we're going to read the warning on the prescribing info on Lupron's website. Quote, Thinning of the bones may occur during therapy with Lupron Depot, which may not be completely reversible in some patients. End quote. What we mean by bone mineral density loss, since, yes, that is when your bones are less dense, Amy, <laughs> is you can actually be at a higher risk of fractures in your bones, so breaking your bones, a higher risk of osteoporosis, as well as bone pain, and all of those things can be permanent. The tricky thing is that it doesn't happen right away. It's a much more long-term side effect. Well, that sounds awful. I know a lot of people who are older who, I mean, even if you're not older and you just like break your bone or imagine you break your hip and you can't walk and you can't sit down and you can't go to the grocery store and you can't do anything unassisted. I mean, a lot of us have been in a situation like that in the weeks that we're recovering from surgery. We're really unable to be independent and doing a lot of things on our own and relying on other people. I cannot even imagine like breaking my hip and having my hip needs to heal for six months, for example. And especially, you know, at any age, but especially if I'm like older in my 60s or 70s or 80s. And my bones have become all brittle and frail and weak. (laughs) It's fun to imagine you at 80 years old. You're totally going to be the cat lady with like 10 cats. Brittany, please. 50 cats minimum. Whoa, 50? Yeah. No. No, no, no. Hold on. I'll have 80 cats. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. One cat for each year that I've been alive. That's not okay. Think about the cats that I would have rescued from the streets. How are you going to fit 80 cats in a house? They'll be living on top of each other. Yeah, that might be a little suffocating, like (laughs) 80 cats sleeping on top of you at night. Think of all the fur. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, no, but seriously, have you seen that commercial on TV? It's for a drug, which I believe is for older women that have osteoporosis. Well, of course it's for a drug. In the U.S., it seems like every other commercial on TV is for some drug or something to ask your doctor about taking. Yes, that is true. Every other commercial is about a drug in the United States. So if you're a listener and you're not in the United States, you are lucky. (laughs) Yeah, you may not realize how inundated we are here in the United States with these kind of commercials. But I think the commercial is really well done because... So this older woman, maybe she's like in her 60s or 70s, and she is walking down the stairs, these wooden stairs, and she's carrying a full basket of laundry. So she has like her laundry basket up at her chest, and she like can't see in front of her, you know, and she's like very carefully going down the stairs. And then she's about to step on a dog toy that was left on the stairs. And then the commercial like pauses in this moment, and like her eyes have gone wide. 
and her mouth opens and she realizes that she's about to step on the dog's toy, slide down the stairs, and break her thinning bones. <gasps> her fragile, thinning bones. <laughs> Horror. Well, if you're going to have 80 cats, you need to be extra careful because each one of those 80 cats needs all of their toys. You're going to have toys everywhere on every surface, every stair, every counter. You better be really careful with all those cats and all their toys. Oh, my God, Brittany, you're totally right. Okay, note to self. Do not have stairs in the house at 80 years old so that you can have all of the cats. (laughs) That's the conclusion. Mm, Okay. (laughs) Well, no, I bring this up because there are some really startling statistics about the mortality rate. And this means the rate of death. So about the mortality rate in older people who have hip fractures. Just like that woman was about to have on the stairs when she stepped on the dog toy. We often don't put a lot of importance on the implications or the consequences of having a hip fracture, but various studies have shown that there is increased mortality rate for hip fractures in patients over 60 or over 65. And these studies have shown that when an older person has a hip fracture, it's estimated that between 14% to 58% will have a one-year mortality 14 to 58% of those people will die within one year of sustaining a hip fracture. Breaking bones at an older age, or at any age really, is not a joke and it is definitely not something to be taken lightly. All my bones might break when my cats lay in the bed with me on my body. Oh my bones are going to be so thin and brittle. That I'll have the weight of 80 cats. 80 cats is a lot of weight. Yeah. I mean, if each of those cats weighs 10 pounds, oh, my God. We're talking (laughs) 800 pounds. That's how he's going to die. And that's a cat on the small side. I mean, there are some fat cats out there that are like 20 pounds. Now we're talking like 1,600. Okay. Maybe I'm going to cut down my cats. (laughs) Oh, that's what made you decide to cut down your cats. (laughs) I realized when they all got in bed with me, I'd be crushed by 1,000 pounds. How about you just run a shelter for cats and then... You just take one of them to bed each night. That'd be safer, and you can save all the kitties and have everybody adopt them. So you might be thinking, okay, I understand what could happen when I'm older, but right now I'm younger, potentially. I'm young and free, and I can survive the odds. We're always young and free. Young and No matter what our age. (laughs) What's funny, because as you age, you don't feel older, right? Like, just your body ages but your spirit is young. So what are the potential effects that a medication like this and bone mineral density loss could have on a young person? All right, Brittany. So on the youngins, which I... <laughs> the youngins? The youngins. Wow. Which I, I just wanted to say that. The youngins <laughs> who eat onions. Oh, wow. Poetry. So many of us, when we are getting our endometriosis symptoms or getting diagnosed with endometriosis, are in our teens, we're in our early 20s. Not all of us. Some of us are not getting our diagnosis until we're, you know, in our 30s, 40s, 50s, myself included, not till I was 33 years old. But many of us are going to the doctor at a younger age, and the doctor is prescribing a GnRH drug like Lupron or Orlissa. And telling us that this is a good option for us and is prescribing this drug to us when we're young adults. It's really important to know that we are actually building our bone density from our early teens until up to age 30. 
So many people actually reach peak bone density between the ages of 25 and 30 years old. So why is that important to know? Well, that's important to know because if we are, let's say that we're 19 years old or 22 years old or 24 years old, and we go on Lupron or Lissa, a medication that may reduce our bone mineral density and the loss of which may not be reversible, and we're on it at a time when we're still building our bone mineral density. You see, so we're actually building our bone mineral density. We don't even have our peak bone mineral density formed. Like our bones are not even fully formed in their mineral density. And now we're on a drug that's reducing them while we're trying to form them. Can you see how that could be really detrimental? Have these drugs been approved for people who are in that peak phase? Or Or Lissa has been approved for people who are 18 years of age or older. In the prescribing guide, it states that they don't know if Orlissa is safe for people under 18 years of age. First, I just want to say that like 18 is such an arbitrary number and like an arbitrary age in general, like because 18 is when you're a quote unquote adult. But that's just the age that our society has decided that you are an adult. Like that's normally the age where you've graduated from high school and most adults will be done with puberty by 18. and. But 18 is just like, it's like, okay, yesterday I was 17. So Orlissa was not safe for me because I was 17 years old and they're not sure of the safety and people under 18 years of age. And now today's my birthday and I'm 18. And now Orlissa's deemed safe for me. Suddenly it's safe. (laughs) They studied Orlissa, the safety of Orlissa in people who are 18 to 49 years old. So now they're saying, oh, you've aged one day and now it's safe for you. You see what I mean? It's like 18 is just such a... Like you're still so young at 18 and your body is just still forming. Your brain is still forming. Your bone mineral density is still forming. Like, I don't know. It's just 18 is just very young. So it is approved in people who are over 18 years of age. But I think that if you are a young adult due to these implications of the potential permanent side effect of bone mineral density loss in the age where you're still forming your bone mineral density, it's a good idea to think very hard about the potential risks versus the potential benefits that you could get from taking Orlissa. As for Lupron, the prescribing information on their website states that the population age range studied for safety for Lupron was 18 to 53 years old. The age range studied for safety with the Lupron monthly injections of 3.75 milligrams plus the add-back therapy was 17 to 43 years old. It also states, quote, safety and effectiveness of Lupron Depot 11.25 milligrams for management of endometriosis have been established in females of reproductive age. Efficacy is expected to be the same for post pubertal adolescents under the age of 18 as for users 18 years or older. Oh, I'll just interrupt. Post-pubertal adolescence means people who are past puberty. Okay, continue reading the prescribing information with your quote. Okay, continue. The rest of the quote. The safety and effectiveness of Lupron Depot 11.25 milligrams for these indications have not been established in premenarchal pediatric patients. End quote. 
So what we're understanding from that is that in the age range that they studied for the safety of Lupron for endometriosis, they included people who were 17 and 18 years old. The prescribing information says that efficacy is expected to be the same for people who are past puberty. So they haven't studied this population of people who are past puberty but under 17. So here they're just assuming, they're just saying, yes, it's expected that the efficacy is going to be the same for these people, but that population of people was not studied. And the next sentence says the safety and effectiveness, so the efficacy, has not been established in people who have not gotten their periods yet. So they don't know if it's safe or not. Since we started this series, we've actually received a couple of messages from people in their teens asking us about Orlissa. And so one of the messages that we received was from someone who was 16, and another message was from someone who was 15 years old. And they reached out to us because their doctor had put them on Orlissa. And of course, Brittany and I are not doctors, so, you know, we made clear, like, we cannot give medical advice. We are not doctors. I mean, I know we're awesome, but we're not qualified. qualified. (laughs) Yeah, we don't have any authority to give medical advice. And of course, nothing that we're saying right now is medical advice. We're just reporting on different facts that we've learned through different sources. But I let both of them know the safety information that's found publicly on the website of Orlissa in the prescribing information and how the safety has not been evaluated for a person under 18 years of age. Always we counsel that if you're not sure about your doctor's judgment or the medicine they're prescribing or the treatment option that they're offering, that you can always get a second opinion. And I know one of them did go seek a second opinion and the next doctor told her Orlissa is not approved for people under 18 and it is not a good option for you at this time. So I believe that she started exploring the route of birth control. So it just blows my mind that like when we receive these messages about the doctor prescribing Orlissa to these really young, I mean, I remember when I was 16 and my endometriosis symptoms had just started and I was in high school and It's such a scary world to start getting and feeling sick and going to doctor's appointments. And we're so young. And I know in my case, I was very impressionable and I was very naive. And I believed everything the doctor told me without batting an eyelid, without even questioning anything because the doctor was the authority figure. So it just blows my mind that these doctors are not getting the prescribing information correct about a very serious drug with very serious potential side effects. So to circle back to the survey that we were talking about in the beginning, which was done by AbbVie, who makes Lupron and Orlissa, the study had highlighted that the least important risk for people was bone risk fracture. So the study didn't explain how much education people were given on what that means what that could potentially mean in the future. So it kind of begs the question of how much were they told? Did they really understand the depth and weight of this risk? I think that the conclusions that AbbVie drew in this study kind of minimizes the seriousness of this risk. It seems to be a way to say like, oh, hey, yeah, there's some serious side effects, but see, 
all these people were willing to deal with the potential of them for the potential to have some temporary improvement in their endopain. Did they know that they were trading the potential for permanent, irreversible side effects for temporary symptom relief? Did they know that the relief from their endometriosis pain would most likely only be temporary? The study's unclear on how much the people were informed about not only the side effects, but also what the medication would actually do for them. It makes you wonder if the 250 people in that study were as informed as you are being informed today by this wonderful podcast (laughs) about the potential risks of Orlissa and Lupron. Well, if we've learned anything from... Abby should have played this podcast (laughs) first before the study. And then gave the list of questions like, okay, now that you listen to Amy and Brittany talk about all the side effects for like an hour and a half, we're going to go ahead and let you pencil in the answers to your questions. And they'd be like, bone mineral density loss. No. I do not want that. It's really serious. I don't want to die when I'm 51 because I broke my hip. So going back to the same study that we're talking about that was done by Abvi about the risks, we also found a really interesting point that they actually evaluated the risk people would take with taking the medication to reduce their period pain from severe to mild at the risk of having severe to moderate hot flashes. So would you trade severe to moderate hot flashes to have a reduction to mild period pain? What we found interesting was that the participants who had not had a history of hot flashes were much more willing to accept the risk of having them than the participants who had had hot flashes in the past. Uh, That sounds about right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. If you've had it, you know how bad it is. If you haven't had it, it can be hard to conceptualize. What I want to know, what percentage of participants who had never had hot flashes were willing to risk hot flashes to reduce their period pain to mild? Well, 38% of those who had never had hot flashes were willing to have that for a reduction of period pain. Mm, what about participants who had had hot flashes? <laughs> who had had <laughs> hot flashes? So comparatively to 38%, only 16% of those that had experienced hot flashes were willing to risk having those just to have a reduction in their period pain. 16%, that was quite small. I think this is also telling for us as humans because humans are really unable to imagine how something could be without having first experienced it. People who had experienced a really uncomfortable side effect, like severe hot flashes, were way less willing to tolerate them as a risk versus people who had never experienced them. They couldn't imagine how difficult having a severe hot flash could be. I think this also speaks to why the majority of people have no idea how to show us sympathy when we say we have endo or struggle with endo pain. You know, we get the same shrug of the shoulders or the attempt at sympathy of that sucks or, oh, you're still sick. Oh, I'm sure it's bad for you. We get kind of the same comments, but they've never experienced that depth of pain which means it's hard to imagine something that you've never experienced before. And as humans, it's really difficult to empathize or sympathize when we have no basis for understanding what someone else is going through. 
because of this inability to understand what something could be like, which is shared by all of us, it's really hard to know whether or not you'd exchange one symptom for another if you've never had that other symptom. We don't really know if we would exchange hot flashes for less period pain unless we've experienced both. Because new symptoms can be more intolerable than ones we have experienced. You know, this reminds me of something that I read online a couple of years ago. And it was a really well-written article about what it's like to live with endometriosis. And this woman said that her periods were so brutal and so torturous that she would do anything to decrease her period pain, including take a medicine that causes cancer, then live another day with her periods that she has. So first, we just want to point out that we don't know of any medicines that you would take to help your pain that would cause cancer. Like cancer is not listed as a side effect of Lupron and Erlissa. So that was just like a hypothetical that she was using in the article to really express how desperate she felt and how intolerable her periods were. Reading that article, I found myself nodding my head at what she was saying because because my periods have always caused debilitating pain. But prior to excision, I was having episodes of debilitating pain that put me on the ground writhing and moaning and vomiting for hours and hours. These episodes of pain began happening weekly, and they were occurring very spontaneously. So, well, really, by spontaneously, I mean when the endometriosis was triggered by whatever thing triggered it. You know, I could be at work and I would drink a glass of water and I would suddenly have debilitating cramps, or I would be pushing the cart at the grocery store and reaching for a cucumber, and then suddenly get that vice pain in my back. Or after I had sex, I would have cramps for like 22 hours. And of course, my actual period where it literally felt like I had a demon inside of me that wanted to rip my insides out for three to four days, making it impossible to even go to the toilet unassisted. So I really empathized when I read that this woman would exchange her debilitating pain for anything, including having cancer. I think that there are times in our life when things can be so intolerable and we can feel like we're losing hope and we are so desperate that anything that might offer a promise of relief might seem like a good option compared to what we're living now, compared to that hell that we are in. But if that promise of relief potentially comes with a really high cost, you know, something like cancer or permanent joint pain or bone pain or other problems that we've never lived and maybe really cannot fathom, then we might just be trading one intolerable situation for another intolerable situation, or we may even find ourselves in a situation that is actually worse than the situation that we are in now. It's so sad that we have to be thinking about such heavy things and have this heavy burden of endometriosis and side effects on our shoulders as we think about our treatment plan. But all of these things that we're talking about, they bring up really important points to ponder before making decisions about our treatment plan. So apart from the risk of bone mineral density loss, 
there's not much known yet about the long-term side effects of Orlissa. And since Orlissa's only been on the market since 2018, which is not very long at all, there's not much data on the long-term effects. As drugs spend more time out on the public market, with more and more people taking them, getting up into the hundreds of thousands, we're able to get much more data on the side effects. As data is gained on side effects and experiences of people taking medications, this can cause adjustments in prescribing information. It can cause drugs to be recalled or completely removed from the market. So the longer a drug is available, the more data we have on what to expect when we take it, as well as the safety. I was actually on a drug named Vioxx back a long time ago when I was in college. So like in 2004, it was a drug that they had prescribed because I had a lot of joint and muscle pain, which later turned out to be fibromyalgia, but they had said it was arthritis. Don't get me started on that. And so they just gave me this drug as it was candy. And they were like, here, you can take one a day and it'll help with your joint pain. And I was like, oh my God, yay. And it did help with my joint pain and I loved it. And then I'd been only on it for like a month when it got recalled and taken off the market because it had caused, if I remember correctly, all these deaths and heart attacks in people. I was only 19. And so I was very upset, like, no, but this drug was working really well for me. And like, why did they take it off of the market? Like, I, I didn't even conceptualize. Oh, my gosh, like, there were a lot of risks taking this drug. And it's a good thing it got taken off the market. I was just, I was just upset that, you know, now I didn't have something to help with the pain that I was feeling in my body. So since that experience, I personally have a philosophy that I don't want to take anything that is new on the market, be that a drug or be that a new medical device. By the way, go watch Netflix, The Bleeding Edge, and you'll see what I mean about the medical devices. Oh, my goodness. Oof. Eye-opening. Personally, I don't want to be taking anything that is new. And of course, I test the safety of drugs during the clinical trials, but it is just not the same as seeing the safety of the drug in the general population when it's being taken by hundreds of thousands of people. So in the actual prescribing information for Orlissa, when it comes to the section about the safety of the drug, it does say, and I quote, because clinical trials are conducted under widely varying conditions, adverse reaction rates observed in the clinical trials of a drug cannot be directly compared to the rates in the clinical trials of another drug and may not reflect the rates observed in clinical practice, end quote. So what does that mean in like non-doctor pharmaceutical company terms? So just the last sentence is really important that they're doing the clinical trials and the adverse reaction is like the side effects. The side effects that they see in the clinical trials, they're saying they may not reflect the side effects and the rates of the side effects that you see when the general public is taking the drug. So that is listed right in the prescribing information on Orlissa. The prescribing information states that the safety of Orlissa was evaluated in two six-month randomized double-blind placebo-controlled clinical trials. Whew, that's a mouthful. Oh my God, well, what, what on the earth is randomized double-blind placebo-controlled <laughs> clinical trials? Well, this is pretty standard, actually, for a lot of clinical trials, including for medications. 
But essentially, it means that a placebo is used. So some population takes the drugs. Another part of the population takes a placebo, which is usually a sugar pill. So it does not cause any effect medically in the body. So double blind means the researchers don't know which population is getting the drug and which population is getting the placebo. So how many people were in these trials that they used to evaluate the safety? There was 1,686 people that participated in the study total. So did all of those take Orlissa? Since it was a placebo study, that means one population took Orlissa and the other part of the population didn't. So the amount of people in the study that took Orlissa was 952 adult people. The other 734 people took a placebo. Okay, so 952 patients took Orlissa. So did they all take the low dose or the high dose, or how did that work? Because there's two doses. Great question. It actually was both. Thank you. So <laughs> You're so smart. So 475 of those who took Orlissa were on the 150 milligram once a day, so the low dose. And 477 of those who took Orlissa were on the 200 milligram twice daily, which is the high dose of Orlissa. How old were these patients? The age range for the study was between 18 and 49 years old. And how long was the clinical trial to evaluate the safety? So the trial for Orlissa was for six months plus another six-month extension. So it totaled 12 months to evaluate the safety for Orlissa. For me, it brings up some questions like, from what the prescribing information said about the safety and how the clinical trials had a duration of up to 12 months, we are just wondering what is the safety evaluation of people who are on Orlissa on the low dose? It's been approved by the FDA to be taken for two years. So we're wondering, was that safety for two years evaluated? And then additionally, like, as you mentioned, the drug is new. So what about the long-term safety of the drug? You know, what effects can it cause our bodies even months or years after we've stopped taking it? And I think only time will tell on that. So if you remember in our Part 2A episode for this series, we talked about ICER. Such a fun name. It stands for the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, and we love them because they are an independent nonprofit research institute, which means their opinion isn't bought or paid for by any companies like Big Pharma. So they analyze the evidence on the effectiveness and value of new medicines, and that includes Orlissa. So we wanted to state the conclusion that they came to when they evaluated the efficacy and safety of Orlissa. As we mentioned in Part A, this report that they put out in 2018 was the accumulation of almost a year of data mining and research on Elagalix, which is the drug name for Orlissa. This report is available on the internet on the Institute for Clinical and Economic Reviews website. So you can go ahead and read the report in full. It's pretty interesting, and it touches on a lot of different points about Orlissa. And the one that we want to highlight today is about the safety. So it says, and I quote, Evidence on Elagalix, which is Orlissa, compared to no treatment was promising but inconclusive. While important clinical benefits in pain reduction were observed, 
potentially serious adverse events, such as increased bone mineral density loss and changes in cholesterol levels have not been fully evaluated. The FDA prescribing information also highlighted warnings about elevated liver function tests, suicidal ideation, and reduced ability to recognize pregnancy. Therefore, the possibility of net harm cannot be ruled out. End quote. So what that means in regular people speak is they mentioned that some of the side effects have not been fully evaluated. And because of some of the other serious side effects, they're saying that there's a possibility that this medicine may cause more harm than help to you. Another quote we wanted to share was about side effects and the relation to bone mineral density loss before and after treatment. And we quote, There is uncertainty regarding side effects with longer-term use and with respect to potential long-term harms particularly decreases in bone mineral density that didn't return to pretreatment levels even after stopping treatment, end quote. What that means is that it looks like the bone mineral density loss decrease may not be reversible. And there's also uncertainty relating to the long-term potential of these side effects, meaning what they'll be like years from now. Now, with Lupron, we know that there can be serious long-term side effects. Since Lupron has been on the market for three decades, that has given ample time for people to see what side effects they may still be having a year, two years, five years, 10 years after stopping Lupron. On 1989, which is when it first came out, was a really long time ago. That is a lot of time for hundreds of thousands of people to have taken Lupron and for research to have been conducted via independent parties about the different long-term side effects. We are going to go into the potential risks of using Lupron in its own separate episode. And the reason why is there is a lot of information on this topic. So today we wanted to focus on the different side effects that are really relevant to Orlissa and to Lupron. But then this very Lupron-specific information, we want to devote an entire hour to that subject because there is a lot of knowledge to be learned. So if you are thinking of using Lupron, then we definitely, definitely recommend that you listen to this episode that we're going to be airing on the potential risks of Lupron. And it's actually going to be the final, that is right, the final episode in our series on Lupron and Erlissa. The final one? I feel like this series was never going to come to an end. Oh my god. Me too. Last one, Brittany. Last one. It's like we saved the best for last. She says sarcastically. <laughs> <laughs> um. Well, maybe in this case, I don't know if it, we would say the best for last. Maybe we would say... The worst for last? That's what I meant with my sarcasm. <laughs> oh, geez. I never get Britney's sarcasm. <laughs> Dries a bone over here. Mm -hmm. So in this last episode that we're going to do, we're also going to explain how GnRH drugs work in the body, which is pretty fascinating. 
And that's going to help us understand better the side effects that Lupron has in the body. And then we're also going to talk about the research and the reports done on the long-term side effects of Lupron. And we're going to space this episode out like we've been doing, so we'll probably air it in just two more episodes. We really hope that this information we shared today has given you something to think about and has helped you to just have more background knowledge on these two drugs because they're so commonly prescribed for endometriosis symptoms. Well, they always say that knowledge is power, and I think this is vital when it comes to making choices about medications and treatments that can affect our quality of life. We would love for you to reach out to us and let us know about your experience taking Lupron or Orlissa. Is it helping your pain? Did it help your pain? How did you feel while you're taking it? Are you having hot flashes or other side effects? Has it improved or did it improve your quality of life? We love hearing from you, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us. We are on Instagram at in16yearsofendo, and we are on the website in16years.com. And additionally, on our website, that's where you can find our support page. And if you're interested, you can buy us a metaphorical coffee that will help pay for the cost to run this podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you next time. 